0: Well, what a rich and meaningful time of encouraging one another this morning in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So thank you, Faith Church West congregation and worship team, for just extolling God through song this morning. It's been a blessed time of encouraging and enriching um, time this morning. One well, stark contrast to rich and meaningful, one of the greatest wastes of my time ever, is when I invested watching in the six-series TV um, show called lost I don't know if anybody remembers that a while back ago you know each episode of that series seemed to develop a new intriguing events with the passengers of Oceanic Airlines flight 815 which crashed onto a mysterious island. You know, as the story went along, there was a, some kind of a strange smoke monster, and everybody was wondering what that thing was. What was the significance of the recurring numbers that um, kind of just popped up in each episode? What was the Dharma Initiative, and who really were Ben Linus and John Locke? You know, in the final sixth season of that series, I can't believe it went on for that long, but and I invested in it. In the final sixth season of that series, the fans have lost were waiting with bated breath to unravel every mystery that was introduced in each of those episodes in the first five seasons. You know, the, fine, the finale came, and I don't know if you watched that, when the finale came, we were all led. What did we get? Does anybody remember? What did we get? We got nothing. There was no, there was no um, meaningful closure to the con- to the conclusion of that series. There was no explanation for the smoke monster. There was no understanding of the repeating numbers. There was no tying up of any of the myriad of loose ends in that show. Fans were left frustrated and scratching their heads and disillusioned. It was as if the creators of Lost themselves were lost themselves. The joke was certainly on the fans for investing in six entire seasons of Lost, hoping that the writers were somehow... Tying this up into some kind of coherent story. you know. Last week I was preaching this sermon at Faith East after the, first, after the first worship service. A father came up to me and said, Brent, my family is watching that series right now. We're in the fifth series. Thank you, the fifth season. Thank you for just giving the game away in the end. So, and I, I didn't think of this. I should have said this, cause, um, but I wasn't that quick. I should have said, you should thank me because I'm just saving you a lot of time. Don't watch the final. It doesn't mean anything anyway. You know, in a secular world, uh, you know, Purdue just had Frank Turek uh, here at Purdue University. And, um, but think about this, in a secular world, a godless world, an atheistic world, why should we even expect a march toward resolution and meaning in the stories of our own life? Isn't it foolish for us to expect some kind of a master planner who is bringing order out of chaos? Famous atheist Richard Dawkins says this, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we ourselves, that we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but, and happy Sunday to each of you pitiless indifference <laughs> isn't that an encouraging thing and notice the title of his book River Out of Eden you know that entire scenario of his atheistic worldview sounds like the plot line of lost random nothingness you know why is loss so dissatisfying because we instinctively know something uh, we, we can deny it but we instinctively know that there is meaning in this world and God has not made this life meaningless and there is a plan and in other creative works of men, they acknowledge this kind of plan. When in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo asked Gandalf how the ring of power came to him, Gandalf says this, Behind that, there was something else at work beyond any design of the ring maker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find that ring, and in which case, Frodo, you were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought as opposed to the plot line of Lost. Later, Frodo and Gandalf are dialoguing about Gollum. Remember the Gollum character, the Smeagol, my precious character in the series? Frodo says this, It's a pity that Bilbo did not kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf rebukes Frodo and says this, Pity, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Frodo, can you give it to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some important part to play yet for good or ill. Before all of this is over, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Spoiler alert, and that's exactly the case at the end of that series. By the end of the token series, all loose ends were tied up to a satisfying and meaningful ending. Furthermore, not one of you, I bet, enter into debates over whether or not Frodo had free will or he was predestined to something like that. All of the characters, we were riveted by them choosing um, the path that they were on and whether or not they would choose the right path. Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis, in his work The Silver Chair, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, describes the adventure of Eustace Clarence Scrubb and Jill Pole. At a point of danger in the book, Eustace and Jill call they actually call for Aslan, the Christ figure in the Narnia stories. Aslan the lion comes, okay? and he says this, I have a task for you, Jill, that's why I called you. And Jill, with great confusion, explains, but Aslan, I called you. And Aslan says, you would not have called me unless I had been calling you. With those thoughts in mind, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1 on page 150 in the back section the New Testament and the Bible in the chair in front of you. We are continuing our series this morning on building upon our heritage. First part of our series in Ephesians is remembering our identity as one in Christ, and today we're opening up the Pandora's box. Yes, we are. You are chosen. <laughs> and we're talking about predestination. We're going there. Everyone, if you will, please say there. <laughs> All right. I apparently was chosen for this sermon. I did not choose it. I, seriously, I did not choose this topic. The pastoral schedule or God himself chose me for this. You know, but before I'm tarred and feathered and run out of town, may I just remind you of how much your entertainment features chosen ones. Um, need I say, Star Wars, Anakin, you were the chosen. Or have a Harry Potter, the boy that lived? And the prophecy, neither can live while the other one survives. How about the Lego movie? Remember the special? (laughs) Terminator. Sarah Connor. I mean, I know this is an old movie. Sarah Connor will give birth to the Chosen One. The Hunger Games with Katniss Everdeen. How about this classic Kung Fu Panda and Poe? Can you imagine us sitting around Starbucks debating on whether Poe had free will or he was predestined to these things? Um, No, you can't. (laughs) Because we don't. But somehow it's a tension in our own lives... We are perfectly content with the outworking of what was meant to be in these entertainment narratives. And at the same time, we're riveted by wondering if the characters will actually choose by their free will to do what is right. We're perfectly content with that tension in our entertainment. But when it comes to us, somehow we are not content because I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my faith. God is my co-pilots. So, we're not necessarily content in our own lives, but our entertainment reflects the tension. Now, as we read Ephesians chapter 1, I would like to remind you of three items to do a little bit before we get into the controversy. We, let me prepare you for predestination a bit, okay? So, number one is this. Ephesia, Ephesians chapter 1 is all about God's work in salvation and perhaps, perhaps, Ephesians chapter 2 could be viewed As salvation from man's perspective. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary on Ephesians 1 states that Ephesians 1 is a one long run-on sentence in the Greek that can be divided into three sections, each section in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about God the Father's work in salvation, God the Son's work in salvation, and God the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. So Ephesians chapter 1 can be divided in that way. So in summary, chapter 1 is all about God's work from God's perspective, Now, when you get to chapter 2, you may notice a slightly different perspective. Salvation from man's viewpoint and the human responsibility of exercising faith. So we have this tension. God's sovereignty in salvation, but at the same time, human responsibility. How do we reconcile these things? Faith Church West, how do we reconcile these things? Say this, we don't. Okay. Um, Let's do that a little bit stronger. Faith Church West, say we don't. don't. All right, we don't reconcile this. Apparently they exist side by side in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Paul was okay with it, and he's inspired by God, so God's okay with it. When Charles Spurgeon was asked about reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he has claimed to have said this, you don't reconcile friends. Second preparation for predestination discussion is this, friends, you just can't, you just can't, if you have eyes to see, you can't read the scripture without seeing it everywhere. And it didn't take me long to write out and find these verses that I'm going to show you. It's everywhere. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis 25, the Lord said to Rachel, okay, Rachel with twins in her womb, two nations are in your womb, and I'm choosing, the older will serve the younger, okay? How about First Samuel? In regard to the King David and Jesse as his father, thus Jesse made seven of his sons go before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not, what's the word? The Lord has not what? Chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are there other children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending sheep. So he sent for him and brought him in. And the Lord said, arise, anoint. Anoint means choose the chosen one. For this is he. Going into the New Testament, it's all over the place. John 6, 36, all that the Father gives will come. John 15, 16, this is where C.S. Lewis got his Aslan thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not call me unless I had been calling you. Acts 13, this is a fascinating verse. In five words, both human responsibility and God's sovereignty is right at the end of this. Notice this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as the Lord had been, here it is, appointed, chosen beforehand, some kind of orchestration by a sovereign Lord to eternal life, believe there is human responsibility. So within the span of five words, you have these friends that don't need to be reconciled according to Charles Spurgeon's words. And a classic passage that all of you know, well, maybe not all of you, but those of you who Hang on to this passage and gives you such great encouragement. It's all through this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew. Lock onto that word for just a moment, foreknew. Foreknew. If you will please say foreknew. Foreknew because we're going to park on that a little bit later. That'll become an important terminology in our discussion today. He also predestined, chose beforehand, to become conformed to the image of a son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he pre-chose, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. And he goes on. 1 Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 1 Peter. We studied this last year. We probably did not bring out the emphasis on predestination or choice as much, but in our discussion last year of First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of, notice all the members of the Trinity, foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It's all over the place. And it didn't take me long to find those verses to put in the presentation this morning. I could find a ton more. The third preparation for us is this grace or meaning and purpose in life. Um, And God's sovereign plan are all dependent upon this teaching. This is not like lost where there's no comprehensive or coherent or um, consistent plot line, not going anywhere. Predestination, God's sovereignty here. Um, If there is going to be grace and meaning and purpose in life, it's dependent upon this doctrine. And I'm going to say something kind of strong here. Without predestination, there is no grace. I know that's strong. And I don't know where you are in the grace, you know, the predestination, free will kind of stuff. But um, this this is an important doctrine that results the end goal is all about grace. And I'll show you that as we go. And if there's meaning and purpose to life, there must be a sovereign God orchestrating it all. Unlike the writers of Lost, who were lost themselves. And if there is at the end of time any kind of coherent tying up of all the loose ends, predestination must be true as well. Early church father Augustine engaged in a confrontation with a group of people later known as the Pelagians who believed that God's choice was... Somehow, because we struggle with God choosing. But they thought that God's choice was based upon as God's peered into the future and as God can only do, he knows those who are going to choose him. So God's choice is based upon his foreknowledge of peering into the future and those who had the wisdom or the capacity or the sensibility to choose him, he would choose them. So some kind of foreknowledge. In fact, Augustine had committed the same error earlier in his life. This is Augustine, early church father, who said this. I was in similar error, thinking that the faith whereby we believe on God is not God's gift, but that it is in us from ourselves. I did not think that faith was preceded by God's grace, but that our consent when the gospel was preached to us was our own doing, and that came to us from ourselves. I had not yet very carefully sought, nor had I yet understood or found what is the nature of these three words, God's election of grace. He hadn't considered what we're talking about today. But during the controversy, he came to this very, very bold conclusion. He said "Thus predestination must be preached. It must, not for an end of itself. Predestination must be preached that God's true grace that is, the grace which is not given according to our merits may be maintained with insuperable or insurmountable defense. Grace hangs on this doctrine. So with those two, those two introductions, I just gave you two introductions. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings where the hobbits had two breakfasts. So are you full yet? Are you full yet with those two introductions? Say no, no, you're not, because I'm not done yet. So the main course is coming. Okay, With those two introductions in mind, let's read Ephesians 1 together, and I'm going to point out as we go. Okay, Number one, that God chooses. It's going to be everywhere in Ephesians chapter 1. That, number one, that God chooses. And number two, toward what end or goal does he choose? What's the purpose of his choosing? Okay, so starting in verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as number one, that He chooses. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That, this is number two. What is the purpose? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. Back to number one. In love, He predestined us. Back to number two. What was the purpose? To adoption as son through Jesus Christ to himself, according to, back to number one, the kind intention of his will. There's choosing there. Um, Back to number two. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Jump down to verse 11. Also, we having obtained and inherit, having, um, number one, being predestined according to his purpose, that God chose who works all thing after the number one again, the counsel of his will, that God chose. Going to number two, what is the end? To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory, jump down to verse 18. This is so amazing and so uh, mysterious and that Paul prays for us to understand this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is Number one, the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of? Number two, the glory of, this is fascinating, his, God's inheritance. Like God has an inheritance. And what is the inheritance? What does it say? God's inheritance. What what does it say? In the saints, God has an inheritance. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Unlike the series Lost, okay? Unlike the series Lost, more like Tolkien and Lewis, Things that happen are meant to happen. There is meaning, and all of it is driving toward a glorious end goal that has an end where all things are tied up. So the doctrine, the doctrine of God the Father is choosing. You are chosen if you are in Christ. The doctrine of God the Father is choosing. Without it, without it, there is no grace But the doctrine of God the Father's choosing provides three necessary supports for understanding, rejoicing in, and resting in God's grace. So you're going to find that today. And the first necessary support of God's grace that predestination does for God's grace is that predestination is the exercise of God's pure, unconditional love. I'm I'm going to explain that. Predestination is the exercise of God's pure, unconditional love when our kids were small. So when they were five to seven years old, somewhere in that range, my wife set them up on her lap and asked them a question. Joshua and Karis, those are my kids, why do you think I love you? Great, you know, great question. And when you're talking to five and seven-year-olds, you can imagine all their great, innocent answers. So Janet asked, why do you think I love you? Here were some of their answers. Because we're cute. <laughs> so what's not to love about cute kids? Because we're good kids. Not a surprising answer. What's not to love about good kids? Because we're kind to others. What's not to love about kind kids? Then Janet asked them a follow-up question. What do you think it would take um, for me to stop loving you? And equally so, their, their answers uh, are pretty amusing. They said uh, something like this. If we hit one another, <laughs> and um, Janet retorts back, like you did yesterday, <laughs> but I still love you today, don't I? And then Josh, thinking that he had a response to outwit his mama, he came up with this with a smirk on his face. I know what would make you stop loving me. I know if I, if I killed somebody, that would make you to stop loving me. And Janet retorted and said, Oh, Josh, that would make me so sad. But, and I would call the police, and you'd be in jail. But I would still visit you every day, and I would love you. Do you know why I love you, Josh and Karis? And here was her answer. Because you are mine, and nothing you have ever done or could ever do will ever change that. You know, what was the kid's five-year-old, seven-year-old view of love? Sometimes it's our view of love that we love them because of some quality or behavior that they possess, and that's why I love them. You know, any response, any response to the question, why do you love me, that involves behavior, skills, character qualities, attributes of the other person, um, is not love, but it's a transaction of merit, a quid pro quo. That's what it is. And I'm not saying it's bad, but it's not grace and love. That's not what it is. Okay, so those of you in relationships right now, let me talk to the men, okay? Husbands or dating men, if your partner says this, why do you love me, please be careful before you answer that. Okay, you need to remember something before you answer that. The Star Wars line quote, it's a trap, it's a trap, (laughs) okay? If your partner says this, or if you say, I love you because you do me good, do you understand? The moment she doesn't do you good, does that say you're going to stop loving her? Uh, I love you because you're beautiful. What happens if she's in a car accident and she's disfigured? Or when she gets 70 years old and there's wrinkles, are you not going to love her then? God's pre-choice of his people is not some kind of detached quid pro quo transaction. There's two textual indicators in our text today that tell us that. Number one is chosen, chosen in love. Not surprising to those who dabble in Greek that love there is the word uh, agape, the, the word in the New Testament most used of God's love for his people. And also, according to the kind intention of his will, describes God's intent to do good to his people regardless of what we do. Another textual indicator, not found in our text today, but was in Those verses that I listed earlier, foreknowledge. Let me park on this one for just a moment. Friends, I don't believe that foreknowledge means foresee. Of course, God foresees. He knows everything. He is beyond time. He's the creator of time, but he's not bound by time. So yes, he knows. He he knows who his people are. And he looks down into um, our time frame and he knows who will believe. But foreknowledge is not limited to foresee those who will choose him. It's not that. The Greek word is derived from the same word as know, as in Adam knew his wife and out of that came a baby. We're talking about intimate love here. Intimate knowledge that only a husband and wife have. That's this. God knew us beforehand, meaning that God not foresaw us, but he loved us. A love that is and will be actively shaping the existence of the one that he sets this intimate love on. Like the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay. That kind of love that a husband and wife would have for one another in their sexual relationship. I knew you intimately before you were born. I consecrated you, and I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Or as David reflects on his origins, and he proclaims to God, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days of my life. They were ordained for me. Before there was even one. Older folks, now I'm gonna show my age by this. So, older folks, anybody here remember that sappy Dan Fogelberg song called Longer? 1979. You know, the the greatest, the greatest songs were in the 80s and the late 70s. Does anybody ever say this? I wanna listen to the 2000 songs. No, you do not. (laughs) It's the 80s, late 70s, longer than. Dan Fogelberg, let me give you some of the lyrics. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean. Higher than every bird any flew, ever flew. Longer than there's been stars up in the heaven. What's the, I've been, Rosanne. I've been in love with you. Sappy, human, romance song. Quite the hyperbole. I've been in love with you longer than there's been fishes in the ocean. Like, uh, I understand hyperbole, but that's not true. But with God, it is true. Before the foundation of the earth, so before there were fishes in the ocean, before there was an earth, before he made the stars, this is what the text says he chose his people in love. But why? Why? Is it because foreknowledge he looks into the future and says, hey, look, man, in 2024, there's Joe. And in Joe in 2024, can you, will you consider, we need to consider Joe to be on the God team. I'm looking down the channels of history and time and Joe is going to be on the God team and we're going to choose him because Joe has more wisdom than his neighbors because he's looking and he has more insight to choose me. Or how about Betty? Betty, when she believes, she's going to have an amazing musical skills for our heavenly choir. We need more of those for the angels around here. Or how about this? We gotta pick John for the God team. We don't have much work to do with him because he's already so moral when he believes that when when he believes we're not gonna do have we're not gonna have a lot of work to do with with John. Any response to the question, why did God choose me in love that involves your character, your skill, your insight, your attributes, your specialness, or your ability to choose him first? Oh, Faith Church West family, that's not love. That's not grace, that's merit. This destroys grace. Why has God loved you? Why has God loved you? He answers that. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. When I taught at Faith East on the You Are Saints sermon, his own possession, term crown jewel. The Lord has given God has chosen you to be His crown jewel out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth because you were so brilliantly shining. You were like crown jewels. No, the Lord did not set His love for you because you were more in number or greater than anybody else. But because the Lord loved you. So why has God loved us? Because He is love and that's what He does. He loved us because He loved us. Predestination, then, his choice, his forechoice, is the basis, the support, or the pillar, or the foundation, whatever undergirding term you want to use there, for pure, unconditional love, not based upon merit or specialness in you. Secondly, predestination is the basis for meaningful purpose and of a growing and changing life. Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be future, holy, and blameless before him. There is a trajectory of his choosing. When I spoke at Faith East, and I think when we spoke here to you about the sermon, You Are Saints, we mentioned that the word "saint" or holy ones means set apart ones. So... The term holy is the same one used in this text as well. God pre-chose his people, set them on a trajectory to be set apart for a particular purpose. God setting you apart for something. Okay? You're set apart for something gives your life meaning, trajectory, purpose. Furthermore, in that same you are saints sermon, we developed in that that the saints were his special possession. The term I used at Faith East was you were his crown jewel. I mentioned that beforehand. And Paul actually alludes to that in Ephesians chapter one hundred eighteen. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, or the riches of the glory of his inheritance. This is fascinating. God has an inheritance. So look at your neighbor, not in a weird way, and look at your neighbor for just a second. I don't see your heads moving. Look at your neighbor. Okay? If your neighbor is in Christ, do you understand that you're looking at God's inheritance? And maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, man, God should get a better inheritance than that. <laughs> but that is, that is surprising, isn't it? his saints his set apart ones are his inheritance somehow his people are his people are his like my wife said to our children you're mine and nothing we have ever done or will ever do can change that and we are and will be his will be his crown jewels notice notice future aspect of all of this and inheritance comes in the future And when will we be fully, holy, and blameless? The answer is in the future. So, if his people will be, future tense, fully, holy, and blameless, and will be someday, future tense, an inheritance of holy ones for God, what does that imply about his choosing of his people initially? Here's what it implies. We were not holy and blameless initially. He chose us not because we were holy and blameless, but that we might be holy and blameless. And this is a work of His grace. His work of His grace to make an unholy and blameworthy people into a holy and blameless people all my friends, truly is a miraculous work of grace. And he's going to put them on display as his crown jewels. Truly a trophy of grace. So, so let's kind of synthesize this in ways that we can understand. Predestination is, so when God chooses beforehand, the moment he chooses out of all of those who are destined for destruction, and he chooses in love, that choice is, is a loving, grace-filled choice. So predestination, number one, is God's grace-filled, loving choice. But then in the course of time, when he opens up his people's eyes to receive that grace, then that grace transforms them. So it's a grace initial choice to extend that grace to his people at the right time that transforms them from being a unholy and blameworthy people unto his holy and blameless people thus here it is predestination is grace upon grace if you will please say grace upon grace say that and you're echoing what the apostle John says for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace now let's push the pause button on that just for a moment Okay, assuming you're in Christ. So I'm talking to believers right now. Then you have received grace upon grace and you are set apart for God's inheritance. And there's a purpose. There's meaning to that. Not like the plot of loss where there was no tying up of anything. So you are set apart to be holy and blameless. That's part of your purpose. Part of your purpose then is to be putting on display God's grace. That's what you were chosen for. By his grace, being on God's team means that more and more God's grace should be more and more a part of your relationships now. And that means that our love for others is to be different than my kids' concept in their five and seven-year-old thinking of love. Our love for others. So God, at the end of all time, is going to be putting his grace on display That means right now I'm chosen to be holy and blameless if I'm in Christ. My love should be different than quid pro quo. My love should be different than mechanical transactions. I should not be just loving those who love me. What good is that? I should not just be seeking in others what makes me most comfortable or pursuing from others what might be the most profitable for me. And you may say, I don't do that. We all do that. Oh, we all do that. Let me just give you a few examples. Parents, oh, parents in love, we just try to give our kids things sometimes when they're being, uh, well, pretty rascally or rebellious. And we say, I'm going to love my kid by giving him this thing that he's throwing a temper tantrum on, but I'm giving it to him to shut him up, basically. (laughs) I'm saying that I'm loving him, but I'm doing it for me. If I just give him this, maybe he'll be quiet for once. That's quid pro quo. Or maybe let me talk to Spouses. Let's say you're in a difficult marriage and you say, I'm loving my husband who is kind of not being walking with Christ or maybe he's not even a believer and he's, he's a rascal of a husband. He's not obedient to God and you're just trying to love him by keeping the peace and not upsetting him. What are you doing? You say you're loving him, okay? But it's really so that he won't be mad at you. Not because you're trying to speak the truth in love which means that's what his soul needs so we do do this in our, in our interactions with people. We do the quid pro quo. We do the merit-based transactions. So if that's what we're doing as God's people, if as God's people we are not orienting our lives around what we've been choosing for, that trajectory of the display of God's grace, guess what? We're going to have a sense of cosmic Schizophrenia. Two identities and one person. And we will have and should have guilt, discontentment, fear, and anxiety in our life because we're not living in alignment with what God has called us for. If on the other hand, if on the beautiful other hand, that we are orienting our lives around becoming what God has predestined us for. And we are extending God's grace, not transaction-based love. But we are extending God's grace to those disobedient children and taking the time to invest in them, not just trying to get them to shut up. If we're extending God's grace to those disobedient children, that unfair boss, that hard-to-live-with spouse, and I will take the courage to speak the truth and love to my spouse, that one who is slandering me, I'm extending God's grace to that one. If that's what I'm doing, then guess what? You are indeed growing and in loving those who are not loving you or cannot love you back. And then you will have an unshakable confidence, a sense of purpose and meaning, joy, because your purpose aligns with that which God has ordained for his people, living blamelessly in accordance with grace and unconditional love. Faith, let me commend you for a while. So we're, this year we're celebrating our 60th anniversary, and you understand making it to 60 years is a, is a, is a feat, And that could not have been possible without a large part of this congregation living exactly according to their purpose. Not perfectly, but in a growing way. And may we excel still more in our 61st year and our 62nd year as well, if the Lord tarries his coming. Finally, the third necessary foundation that predestination supplies for God's grace is this. Predestination is the satisfying explanation for God's plan for the ages. Let me explain what I mean by that. In Paul's exuberance resulting in one of the longest run-on sentences known to man in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul Paul excitedly gives the game away. Um, He spoils the end game so that everybody knows the last chapter of, uh, the last line of mankind's history book. He reveals the redemptive history has a coherent plot line unlike lost. There will be no scratching of heads wondering, was there meaning and purpose in life? Was everything that happened simply random or insignificant? Was Is there? Will there be truly a satisfying ending? The master author of mankind's history has so designed it that all loose ends will culminate satisfyingly in spotlighting and magnifying the most glorious aspect of the character of God, His grace. That's what the text says. Why, is, why has God preordained all of this? It says it in the text, giving the game away. To the praise and the glory of his grace. Oh, please notice what it's not. Paul did not say to the praise and the glory of God's wrath. Although God will demonstrate his wrath at the appropriate time as well. Paul did not say to the praise and the glory of his ability to spin galaxies in his hand. Although that's impressive and that's amazing. Paul did not say that but to the praise and the glory of his grace and its grace upon grace with his people as the one and only exhibit as his crown jewels shining like the stars who have been transformed to be holy and blameless for all to see. And that was predetermined by God's choice before the foundation of the earth to be the coherent plot line of redemptive history. Now, friends, we live in a culture that values choice almost above everything else. I mean, just think about it. You go to a restaurant. You pick something that they have. You choose what they have on the menu. And if they don't have it, what happens? (laughs) You get upset. Okay? You know, sometimes we have so many choices that we become immobilized and we cannot even choose anymore. But we live in a culture in our modern and rich culture where we have so many choices and we love our choices but what does it say about us when we get all anxious and debating about whether or not god has a choice in the matter you know what does all of our angst and theological debates over god's choosing reveal about us you love your choices you love your choices here's what i think it reveals that we begrudge God for what we actually love ourselves, which is the ability to choose. And in that begrudging God, what we love ourselves, I think it shows us our pride and our hubris. Furthermore, in begrudging God his choice, I'm going to say this very strongly, you are still in your sins. If you begrudge God His choice and predestination, there is no salvation. Here's what I mean by that. If there was no choice of you, then there was no choice of another before you that would be the basis of grace for you. You say, prove that, okay. We studied this passage last year. I didn't say it in this way, but it says it. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was, say the word, he was what? Oh, foreknown. Later on in 1 Peter, he was the chosen cornerstone. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God did not just foresee His Son in some kind of detached way, but God the Father knew, intimate, for loved Him intimately. God the Father chose the one whom He forloved, the one residing in His own bosom. He chose His own Son so that He might choose a people to have the grace that His chosen Son secured. And in doing so, you have grace Upon grace. So if there is no predetermined choice of you, there is no grace upon grace found in the chosen one, Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus as the chosen one, the gift of grace for God's people, you may logically be wondering this. And this this question flows from everything that I've said. Am I chosen? So you... You're here, you've heard the gospel before, and you're wondering, am I chosen? Let me just say this. If you are sick physically and there is a physical cure, and you say, I'm not ever going to take that cure ever, and then you die from that physical sickness, guess what? You are predestined and chosen to die and not live. On the other hand, and praise the Lord, there is another hand. Right now, if you know that you are sick and there is a cure and you say, I'm taking the medicine for my sickness right now and I live, guess what? You are predestined to live. You are chosen. So friends, unbelieving friend right now who is possibly feeling the work of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, if you are sensing that work of God in your life, the Holy Spirit's conviction, take the gospel medicine right now by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ as your only hope He's the chosen one. And then if you do, guess what? You are chosen. You are his people. And believers, let me now give you just a few applications as we close here. So rightly understood, the doctrine of predestination is the doctrine of grace upon grace. And as Augustine said in the great... Um, theological debates back in the early days. As Augustine said, it must be preached and understood, not as an end to itself to try to understand all the mysteries of God, but we preach predestination, God's forechoice, as an end toward the ends of grace from beginning to the end. And thus, if rightly understood, the doctrine of predestination, if you understand it rightly, should result in, oh my goodness, unbounded thanksgiving and praise. What's the reason for Paul's longest run-on sentence known to man? He's enamored. He's enamored with God's grace. It should also result in this, humility. (laughs) You understand, God chose me. What a cosmic joke that is. (laughs) A cosmic joke. We cannot take ourselves so seriously as if God got lucky when he chose me and I got on the God team. No, in fact, he says quite the opposite. God chose the foolish things of the world. Who would that be? That would be us. He chose we're a cosmic joke in one sense, and that should result in great humility. And then unconditional love, meaning the extension of grace to others. Love people not because of what they do. In our, in our childlike understanding of transactional love, Love people not because of what they do for us, but simply because love is the end goal. It's the unconditional love, the purest form of love. And friends, it should do also this. It should, we should repent from any kind of divisive self-righteousness among, his, among our, God's people. When I get all uppity about who I am compared to you, predestination rightly understood. Again, cosmic joke that any of us are chosen. Why? Why? Am I boasting? This levels the playing field. There is no boasting now. Eternal security, his people are his people are his. Just as when Janet said to our kids, You're mine, and nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever change that. Eternal security. His people are his and they are secure as his inheritance. And finally, passionate outreach. You say, this doesn't quite go if God is sovereignly orchestrating everything and that people are going to come to him, why on earth should I ever preach the gospel? Well, think about this. If you are truly enamored with God's grace, if you understand it the way that I've tried to at least feebly explain it today, grace, if you are enamored by that, you're also going to have one of the longest run-on sentences coming out of your mouth, babbling about God's grace to others. And God not only foreordained who would come to know Jesus, but he also foreordained how that would happen through his people babbling on about God's grace. He saves whom he will save, but the promise remains that any who call upon his name, he shall save. Josiah Condor wrote this hymn that summarizes all that I've talked about. You say, Brent, you should have just summarized these two verses and the sermon would have been a lot shorter. Well, here it is anyway. Lord, tis not that I did choose you. For that I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. You removed the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own. For this purpose you ordained me that I should live for you alone. Verse number 2. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories, blind. Now I worship none above you, for your grace alone I thirst, knowing that, well, (laughs) if I love you now, God, it must be because you love me first. Grace upon grace, let's pray. Father, please help us. Please help us, Father, to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love in Jesus Christ? Oh, it surpasses our knowledge so that we might be filled up to the fullness of you in what you are moving all redemptive history toward, to the praise and the glory of your grace. It's because of Jesus. Amen.